Welcome to the Shalom Hartman Institute podcast. I'm Alan Abbey. The Hartman Institute is a center of transformative thinking and teaching. We address the major challenges facing the Jewish people and elevate the quality of Jewish life in Israel and around the world. For details on seminars in Israel and North America, go to hartman.org.il. And now, David Hartman, President Emeritus and founder of Shalom Hartman Institute, with the first lecture in his four-part series titled, How Do the Different Interpretations of the Mythic Story of the Exodus Shape Our Vision of Jewish History? I want to introduce my remarks by first saying, that for me, philosophy, or philosophy of religion or philosophy of Judaism may have had as one of its goals to establish the truth of what the biblical or Talmudic world claimed. I believe that all their efforts, although noble, are not convincing. And I believe I have not discovered in all my young years any substantial point of view which is a knockout argument, which gives me certainty, which gives me truth, unquestionable truth. So therefore, for me, what, what's the, what am I knocking myself out for? I just completed a new book, and I'm working on another one now. So it's a waste. What I've come to understand, I'm like my trainer tells me, I'm now enveloped by help people <laughs> to keep me going. That he went to the hotel. He put his head on the rocks like that, and he felt deeply comforted. So I could have been cynical and told him if it was cold, you could catch a cold. <laughs> but I shut up. I didn't say anything. I saw in his face that he felt something. For me, Religion provides something. It may not be true. I don't know what true means. Truth is not an interesting category for me. What is interesting for me is does it give you some meaning? Does it give you some peace? Does it give you some sense of purpose? Does it give a direction to your life? The question is not if it's true. I don't know if it's true. Is it true that God exists? I don't know. So they asked Salvechik, how do you know there's a God? He says, my father told me. <laughs> but he was not my father. So I mean, what type of answer is that? The answer is that he decided deeply to be within a living tradition. That there's some need that religion satisfies 
some sense of belonging, a sense of being part of an ordered world, an overcoming of chaos, an overcoming of arbitrariness, a sense that I am rooted in something permanent gives people a deep sense of satisfaction. Why? I don't know. And it's not for me to judge why it does or does not. But it does seem to mean things to people. Otherwise, why do millions of people all over the world, over all these years, still pray when it's totally futile? <laughs> I mean, I haven't yet found, you know, a way to trigger an answer, to sort of say, say this and the channels will be communicated and you'll be safe. My mother would pray for my brother to have a shidduch, that he'd finally meet a, a nice girl, my older brother, Oliver Shalom. And I'd see her praying and praying. I'd say, Mama, what do you think you're doing? So what am I going to tell them? Ma, it's not going to depend on the Rabbanishlam. It's going to depend on some girls that he meets. And he ought to join a club where he could meet nice women. She says, Her answer would be correct. She couldn't understand what I was saying to her. What do you mean? I can't plead to God. So what am I going to tell her, Ma? The principle of verification in philosophy has been established that it doesn't make any difference, that prayer doesn't change anything. So why do people go on praying? Why do they go to shul every Shabbos? What, what, what is there? What do you think you're going to leave with? Make a mishaberich, please. All those who have cholim, will they please stand up? as we're going to make a prayer now for the sick. So thank God I'm an invalid, so I don't have to stand up. What are you talking What's this Mishaberach? What's the Mishaberach? What's the Mishaberach going to do? I remember when my son-in-law was, his plane was shut down, and we didn't know which pilot was alive and which one was dead. And my nephew, who's a from boy, would come to me and says, Dod Duvi, I want to now hire someone at the Kaisel to say till him every day for Arala. It was a waste of money. But I wouldn't say that to him. I let him tzadik be'emunoto yichyeh. A person builds his life out of certain beliefs certain hopes, certain aspirations. What degree does it correspond to reality? The answer is, what is reality? What is reality? Reality is my hope. Reality is my aspiration. My, my, my reality is the possibility that there will be a change. So I, therefore, I want you to know all my lectures up till now have nothing to do with truth. 
and the next four lectures will not have anything to do with true. I will not be here to judge if you are a rational thinker or what. It means something to you. It does something for you. Be in touch with that. And let no one take that away from you. It's no one's business to go into your puppet, into your neshama, and decide if it's authentic, not authentic, true, valid. The only thing that I do is I say, what's the implications of your belief structure? How does it affect your everyday life? Now, if you believe that the Rabbeinu Shlom is standing upstairs waiting to turn on Eretz and let Kedusha grow out of the rocks, and you're going to go organize a civil war if they want to be Pinui Yishuvim, that's important. Because then your dreams, and your, you call it fantasies or call it your myths, are touching reality, is affecting everyday life, is affecting political decisions, is affecting how, what type of world you think you're going to be building, and what are you prepared to do? That's an important question. The question is not, is it true? The question is, what are the consequences of your beliefs? What is it that you in some way hold your beliefs to make possible? So when people thought after Mulchemet Sheshet Yamim that we are now Be'ikvot HaMashiach that the footsteps of the Messiah is now all over the Israel. And let me tell you who the Messiah is. And he starts telling you what's going to be. Hunger will be banished. War will be banished. Poverty will be overcome. Disease will be overcome. Alienation between people will be overcome. Okay. So if that would mean I don't have to build a hospital, if that would mean I don't have to invest in public health, that's a serious question. If as a result of your beliefs, what are you prepared to do and not to do? That's the important question. If you believe that your health is with a mishaberach, do I go to a good doctor in Hadassah? Or not? What do I say? Was and they had come to my house when the Biana Rebbe was in Brownsville, and everybody was writing Kvitlach. Do you know what a Kvitl is? Have you ever seen a Rebbe Prava a tish with Kvitlach? Oh, you haven't lived, you people. You've lived very naive lives. in Kvitl, what you want the Rebbe to plead for, you close the Kvitl and you put in a few bucks. <laughs> That's the crucial Kvitl. And you bring it to the Rebbe, and you leave it there, and you feel secure. You've opened up the channels to the Rebbeinu Shalom through the Biana Rebbe. And they used to come in hordes. So I looked at their faces. What are you doing? Do you think that this means anything? It would be a meaningless question to them. 
they, they won't grasp what you're talking about. Um, don't you understand? My father and his father before him would go to the Rebbe for a bracha. You go to the Lubavitcher Rebbe for a bracha. What do you think? You're going there to discover truth? You're going there to feel in some way that new forces have been unleashed in the universe which are meant to in some way look after you. And this is the important question. Consequences of belief, implications of belief, not the question of truth. And you ask yourself, what does it mean for me? And let no one take that away from you. You feel good. There's nothing wrong with feeling good. It makes you feel peaceful. It gives you serenity. It gives you a feeling that your life has a purpose. Your life has meaning. What am I going to say? Do you have an alternative medicine that provides that for people? So religion then seems to satisfy a lot of basic human needs. The lonely individual, the frightened individual, the individual who is in some way torn by a world that doesn't seem to go anyplace and he doesn't know what's his place in that world. He wants to wake up in the morning and feel there's a structure and his place is there, and his life is significant in a world which seems <coughs> to suggest that it's nothing. Nothingness is not what you want to live with. Just get that clear. Loneliness feeling lost has nothing to do with truth has nothing to do with science they haven't developed a pill technologically how you overcome the feelings of loneliness boredom restlessness ennui there's no time to life how do you restore time to life a sense that it's something worthwhile and I want to go on living. Why? I want to go on living. Spinoza said you don't have to have a proof for your right to exist. The only people I know in the world who have to legitimate their existence are Jews. We have a right to have a state. And we're trying to establish our legitimacy in the world. Why? Who gives a heck what the world thinks of us? But it seems that we care. We want the world to like you. You want the world to admire you. What does that need? That's a need. Loneliness is a need. Helplessness is a need. Does prayer work? I don't know, but it sort of makes me feel good in the morning when I could. I feel good with the Mishaberach. I feel relieved that I've done all I can to help the sick, to help my mother, or to help my child. I don't ask about the truth or the efficacy. It's not a question of efficacy of prayer. 
And the issue of petitional prayer is not does it work. But people are saying petitional prayer no matter what the reality is. They've gone on saying and asking Rafainu Hashem Vene Rafay, heal us, free us, bring us back to our home for thousands of years. That has nothing to do if in fact politically there are changes. What happened to Zionism, and this is very important, they gave up davening. That's what they did. They closed the Siddur. And they said there's no petitional prayer. If there is petitional prayer, it is addressed to the community. It's a demand on us to in some way build a world which could fulfill our aspirations. But to think that there will be a transcendent force that will make that difference, I don't say yes and I don't say no. Hands off, as William James would say, hands off. The whole truth has not been given to any group. Leave it alone. Leave people alone. That's it's the only when you're a rabbi do you think you have the answer. Because that's what the congregation expects you to have. So every time you give a drusha, they're waiting to hear what's the word? What's the saving word? And I'd like to begin with the important distinction that Yehuda Levi and the Kuzari is arguing with. There are two fundamental protagonists, two groups that he's in struggle with. One is the philosophers and one is other religions. The philosophers present the problem that what gives meaning to life is not a belief in some outer force, but the purity of soul, your purity of conviction, your own intellectual gro growth. That is what makes for your life. What religion you choose or which davening is, is Latin, Hebrew, Arabic. For the philosophers, there is no personal God. And therefore, for the philosophers, there is only Elohim, which is the God of nature. There's no God in history. There's no providential design. There's no relationship from this ultimate transcendent power to your singular life. That takes place when the shift from the God of nature, Elohim, to Havaya, Yudke Vavke, Yudke Vavke, Eheya. When Moshe was asked God, they asked me, what's your name? Just tell them Ehiyah sent you. <laughs> Who's Ehiyah? What's Ehiyah? What type of name is Ehiyah? Yeah, Ehiyasha Ehiyah. No, what is that? Ehiyash tochani alechem. What he said to him was, tell them that their belief 
makes a difference because it provides a ground for hope. Does hope have to be based on reality? Look how many people get married. <laughs> Look how many people get married and it's 50% divorce. I mean, who has nachas from children? I mean, God, I mean. I mean, you, you, you bring a child into the world and you tremble. Or your child gets married and they say, Mazel tov, yes, thank you. This is the first one. <laughs> There's a few more coming. <laughs> what type of world is that? So for Yehuda Levi, Eye, tell him that God is with him. Eye I am following him, the individual in his life. Because for Yehuda Halevi, God is alive, not through philosophy, not through nature, but through history. Events in history mediate a personal God. So that's how he reads it. Anochi Adonai, stop. That's God's name. Anochi Adonai. And I'm Elohecha. And I have a connection with you. And how do you know that? Because look at your history. From your liberation from slavery, you should be convinced that I am with you in your struggles. I'm with you in your aspirations for freedom. I'm the God of history. I'm the God who is seen, not in the cosmic nature, but through the events of the world. Israel brought a personal God to mankind. And that's what the Kuzari simply argues. The philosopher says, that's nonsense. The Christian and the Muslim say, yes, we believe in the Old Testament. We believe all the stories, except we say that there's a, a new chapter but they don't deny the foundations of the book. And that's why Christianity and Islam for the Kuzari are the messages of a personal God to the world. They mediate for the world the God of history. And therefore the exodus from Egypt is crucial for building a God consciousness. It is that memory, it's that story and if you read the Bible, the story is crazy. It's much a crazy story. It's, it's Grimm's fairy tales. Every time they read that in the Chumash, when the, in, in Israel there was light. By the Goyim, the Egyptians, it was dark, Choshech. The wells of the, of the Egyptians were filled with blood. Jews had Evians. What type of stories are these? The frogs were bothered only the Egyptians, didn't bother the Jews. I mean, the whole mythological story, it's a myth. By myth, I mean it's a story that has nothing to do with what you think happens in reality. It's a construct of some fantasy you carry in your soul. 
And then in the Gada of Pesach, he said, not only 10, there were 50 plagues. 30, how many say, who's going to make it 200? 200, Rabbi Kiva. I mean, what's going on? What, what type of story is this? What am I supposed to do with my imagination, with my rationality? Suspend it. Live in a world of fantasy. Live in a world of myth. True? I remember there was a whole discussion which was the sea that they crossed. The Sea of Reeds or the Red Sea. And rabbis in California gave sermons on that. And the Jewish papers picked it up and they was talking. He denied that the sea splitted. No, do you think, would you walk into the Atlantic Ocean expecting it to split? So the Midrash says it didn't until he jumped into the water. So what is, you know, it was, there was dry land, a road, Kvishechad, through the lakes. And the Goyim are just drowning on the right and to the left. And you say this every day in your prayers. After the Shema. Seeing the Egyptians drowning is when we said, It was the event of the dramatic liberation that brought home to the Jewish people, This is my God. And the Midrash would say, what a woman servant saw at the sea, her God was not something she rationally understood, but the events of her life, which she understood as mediating a living force called God, called Ha'afaya, called Anochi Adonai, not Elohim, accompanies the Jewish people. So therefore, what did the Jews do in history? Our contribution was to take God out of the cosmic forces of nature and bring him into the events of everyday life. People tell stories of the Yom Kippur War, and then they say, you see, there's a of him. I was shocked when a mother would say, when they went into the Beit Midrash of Merkaz Arav, and they shot at students, and one of them got killed, and the one that was next to him, they didn't, didn't get him shot. So she says, I thank the Rabbeinu Shalom for such hashgacha. So I, I say, what type of hashgacha is that? One kid got killed, but it wasn't mine. So you're willing to build a fantasy world on something that is even cruel. I remember when we didn't know if Arla was alive or dead, we were praying for Arla. 
which meant that we were saying that the other pilot should die. He should be the one that should be shot down. Does this one's life depend on this one's death? Is it a world of symmetry? Is it a world of justice where all will receive their due? Is that the world we live in? That's tzaddik, but the felt experience of people is tzaddik v'ralo, rasha v'tovlo. That the world doesn't confirm a moral God. The world doesn't confirm a just providential world. If it doesn't, then why do you keep on living with that? Why not? It's like saying it doesn't cost that much. <laughs> I mean, if you had to, say, spend $100 for every prayer, I could understand then people's reluctance. But it doesn't cost anything. The shul is open, so why not? Why not just whiz through it and talk about God's providential power as we left Egypt? And the death of the Egyptians is the ground of our freedom. Nice story. It's their death that makes us free. And that's how we build the foundations of our historical belief. So another dimension of Judaism, which is very important, to, which Yehuda Levi bothered with. Why the Jews? Why were the Jews chosen to mediate the living God of history? Why are we the mediator of events? Why are we the mediator of divine providence? Now I gave you, look at the Ramban. I'd like to start with Nachmanli's text. So far you're following me? You're not upset, are you? You're gonna to go to shul tomorrow morning? <laughs> okay. Okay, Joe, you wanna read that, please? This divine utterance constitutes a positive commandment. He said, I am the eternal, thus teaching and commanding them that they should know and believe that the eternal exists and that he is God to them. That is to say, there exists an eternal being through whom everything has come into existence by his will and power, and he is God to them who are obligated to worship him. He said, who brought thee out of the land of Egypt? Because his taking them out from there was the evidence establishing the existence and will of God, for it was his knowledge and providence that we came out from there. The Exodus is also evidence for the creation of the world, for assuming the eternity of the universe, which precludes a master of the universe who is in control of it. It would follow that nothing could be changed from its nature, and it is also evidence for God's infinite power, and his infinite power is an indication of the unity, as he said, that thou, i.e. Pharaoh, mayst know that there is none like me in all the earth, this is the intent of the expression, who brought thee out, since they are the ones who know and are witnesses to all these things. The meaning of out of the house of bondage 
is that they stayed in Egypt in a house of bondage as captives of Pharaoh. He said this to them in order to indicate that they are obligated to accept this great, glorious, and fearful name as their God and to worship him because he redeemed them from Egyptian bondage. It is similar in meaning to the verse, they are my servants whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt. I have also already alluded to above by the way of the truth, the mystic lore of the Kabbalah, to the reason why the two sacred names, the Tetragrammaton and Elohim, are mentioned here. This commandment in the words of our rabbis is called the obligation to take upon oneself the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. For these words, i.e. the eternal your God, which I have mentioned, indicate a king addressing his people. Thus the rabbis have said in the Mechilta, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Why is this said? Because it says, I am the eternal thy God. This can be illustrated by a parable. A king invaded a country, and his attendants said to him, Issue decrees to us. He, however, refused, saying, No, when you have accepted my sovereignty, I will issue decrees to you. For if you do not accept my sovereignty, how will you carry out my decrees? Similarly, God said to Israel, I am the, etern I am the eternal, thy God. Thou shalt have no other gods. I I am he whose sovereignty you have accepted in Egypt. And when they said to him, yes, he continued, now, just as you have accepted my sovereignty, so you must also accept my decrees. That is to say, since you have accepted upon yourselves and have admitted that I am the eternal and that I am your God from the time that you were yet in the land of Egypt, then accept all my commandments. Continue, next page. Now all the Ten Commandments are expressed in the singular, the eternal thy God who brought thee out, and not as he began to say before the giving of Torah, Torah, ye have seen, if ye will hearken. This is because his intent is to warn that each individual is subject to punishment for transgression of the commandments, since he addresses himself to each one individually, commanding him that he should not think that he will judge according to the majority, and that the individual will be saved with them. This intent was explained to the people by Moses at the end of the Torah in the section Atim Nitzavim. Okay, now, so what does the Ramban say? Everything we expect of a living providential God is implied in the first commandment. Anoch Adonai is the first thing you accept, not only the existence of God. The question is not existence. The question is, what does he mean to you? What does he do in your life? How does your life give expression to your feeling that there is a God? That's the important question for halacha and for Judaism. What are the consequences of your commitment? What implication? That's what halacha is. What is it that derives from your belief center? What are the results of your convictions? If there's no difference, then what meaning do those convictions have? I remember, I don't know if I once told you the story when I was a Hebrew school teacher, 
my students would come over to me and say, you know, Rabbi, we stopped believing in God. So they thought I'd get shocked. They didn't realize that I was a bigger atheist than all of them. And I asked them, when did you stop believing in God? So the kids say, on Wednesday. Okay, now you remember what happened on Thursday? Yes. And Tuesday you did believe, right. Now is there any difference the way you lived Tuesday and the way you lived on Thursday? They said no. So either you never believed in God or you still believe in God. Because if there's no difference in the way you're prepared to act, so what is the meaning of your affirmation? Like I would always, when I was the president of, a sh of my first shul, his wife was an old lady already. They fought for 60 years. Can I know her with real courage <laughs> and fortitude? So I'd go to her and say, Mrs. Kaplan, you think you and Mr. Kaplan, Saul Kaplan, could make up and live b'shalom with each other? Chas b'shalom! I say, why, Mrs. Kaplan? I will never forgive him for all he did when he was young. I say, Mrs. Kaplan, are you going to shul, young Kippur? Yes. Are you going to ask the Rabbani Shalom to forgive you? Yes. So if you ask the Rabbani Shalom to forgive you, why can't you forgive Mr. Kaplan? He says, nothing has to do with each other. <laughs> what I ask the Rabbani Shalom is one thing. My feeling for Mr. Kaplan is another thing. Because you see, a feeling for the Rabbani Shalom is a story. It's a myth. You can fill it with anything you want. Mr. Kaplan is a living person who she hates. <laughs> and she's not going to in some way look upon this miserable man in any other way because it's a reality. What is the difference when something is a reality and something is a myth, a story, an imaginative escape? So Yom Kippur and all these things are imaginative escapes. I used to look at my shul and say, did anyone really change on Yom Kippur after being in shul for 24 hours? No one! <laughs> they came in and they left the same way. The only problem was how many hours did they stop eating? <laughs> that was the driving problem. And when Yom Kippur ended, they ran out of the shul like Auschwitz victims. What does it have to do with Yom Kippur? Yom Kippur? Yom Kippur is when people go to shul, right? Rosh Hashanah, Shana Tova, Shana Tova. And everybody in Israeli television wishes everybody else a Shana Tova, smiling, loving. <laughs> I always say, what a wonderful country. Everybody loves each other on Rosh Hashanah. At least it happens once a year. And on Yom Kippur, then they come and say, Gemar Tov, Gemar Tov. I say, excuse me, can you tell me what that means? What does Gemar Tov mean? I don't know, they're not interested in what it means. It's become part of the folk language. Israel gives you a folk frame of reference in which Jewish terms are used 
without having any specific meaning. That's what, that's what you say. And they hate each other. I never saw a group of people who hate each other more than Chavre Knesset. They look lovingly and they all wish each other Shana Tova. Gemar Chatima Tova. Why is that possible? The rhythms of the Chagim are frames of mythological realities. We construct a year around these mythic stories. These mythic stories have some significance for us. I ask people, what do you get out of the Seder? So most people tell me a heartburn. <laughs> I mean, so Hartman, what are you leaving? Leave people alone. They want to sing Chadgadja. So what of it? What's this Chadgadja? I don't know what the heck that so song's about. It's so frightening. Each one is killing each other off. Who kills the Rabbanishadim? He's the only one who survives at the end. So I say that the Rabbanishadim was killed by Nietzsche. <laughs> In Nietzsche's philosophy, God is dead. So at least they all end up with Sholem. What is it about? Is it a legitimate question that I'm asking? If you read now, I mean, I, I worked for hours on this text. And my son asked me, Abba, why are you working so hard on it? Are they going to read it? I said, I don't know. I want them to feel guilty because they don't. <laughs> what do you think? I'm going to make you feel good? Let's look. What does it mean to believe in God and the covenant? Do you read this? Are you in shul when they read Leviticus? Okay, now look, look, look what this promise is about. What this God is about. You got it? 26 Leviticus. Chaim. If you follow my laws and faithfully observe my commandments, I will grant you your rains in their season, so that the earth shall yield its produce and the trees of the field their fruit. Your threshing shall overtake the vintage, and your vintage shall overtake the sowing. You shall eat your fill of bread and dwell securely in your land. Now, this is a promise if you observe the Torah. If you follow his commandments, you could expect these things to happen. Can look or continue further and watch what happens when you don't. <laughs> you better hide. <laughs> Go ahead. I will grant peace in the land, and you shall and you shall lie down untroubled by anyone. I will give the land respite from vicious beasts, and no sword shall cross your land. You shall give chase to your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall give chase to a hundred, and a hundred of you shall give chase to 10,000. Your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. Right. Make you fertile and multiply, multiply you, and I will maintain my covenant with you. You shall eat old grain long stored. You shall have to clear out the old to make room for the new. I will establish my abode in your midst, and I will not spurn you. I will be ever present in your midst. I will be your God, and you shall be my people. 
I, the Lord, am your God who brought you out from the land of the Egyptians to be their slaves no more, who broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. Okay, you got that? This is the promise if you obey. If you live by the Torah, this is what you can anticipate. True? Is this a true description of reality? Is the million children who died in Auschwitz children who didn't keep mitzvahs? I mean, is it strange now when Lubavitch or anybody else, when the, the bus fell up north and 36 children were killed, what did they do? They looked to find out the reason for the accident. You'd imagine what they would do would look at the car if it had good brakes. No, that's not what a good frumid guy does. He goes, looks at the film. If there's any unkosher film among the people, if the mezuzahs are okay, check the mezuzah. Wrong, the mezuzah's not written right. Okay, we have now the reason for the accident. So you have a cause and effect which is based upon what the Bible promises. Now what happens if you don't? Go ahead. But if you do not obey me and do not observe all, my, all these commandments, if you reject my laws and spurn my rules so that you do not observe all my commandments and you break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. I will wreak misery upon you, consumption and fever, which cause the eyes to pine and the body to languish. You shall sow your seed to no purpose, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you. You shall be routed by your enemies, and your foes shall dominate you. You shall flee through though none pursues. And if for all that you do not obey me, I will go on to discipline you sevenfold for your sins, and I will break your proud glory. I will make your skies like iron and your earth like copper, so that your strength shall be spent for no purpose. Your land shall not yield its produce, nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. And if you remain hostile toward me and refuse to obey me, I will go on smiting you sevenfold for your sins. I will loose wild beasts against you, and they shall bereave you of your children and wipe out your cattle. They shall decimate you, and your roads shall be deserted. And if these things fail to discipline you for me, you and you remain hostile to me, I too will. Many people would be frightened to get an aliyah on this parsha. And I remember the Balkora would suddenly drop his voice. Like not to say it so people should hear. As if the feeling is if you say it out loud, the Rabbani Shalom is going to remind himself, aha! <laughs> Time has come for me to implement my covenantal promises. The joy of being Jewish. The security and peace of mind that comes from living by Torah. What type of world is this world? It's a terrifying world. It's a world in which Fear has no grounding. You'll run with no one running after you. You will sow and work your fields and no one will eat from it. It would be a world of total frustration, a world of total meaninglessness. That's if you don't observe the covenantal commandments. 
So the ground of religion is you do this, you can expect this. You don't do this, you can expect that. It's just a reciprocity of reward and punishment that there's a re reaction to the covenantal commandments. So Judaism is a world of reward and punishment. You can anticipate horror if you do not. And you can understand now why the Haredi community are gonna throw stones at people who drive their cars on Shabbos. They have the feeling, I mean, this is gonna bring havoc. There's gonna be a parking lot in Yerushalayim. People are gonna feel comfortable on Shabbos. Shabbos, Shabbos, Shabbos. And then everybody sitters and they leave these frummies alone because they remind them of their grandfathers who had a beard in Paris. So they trample on an Israeli flag and you say, shh. They are the ones who are Shomer Gachelet. They're the ones who provide security for the Jewish people. Because we, secular Jews, have abandoned the covenant. As a result of abandoning the covenant, our lives are filled with despair, chaos, suffering. Our lot, it's terrifying. In other words, the covenant is not a soothing, comforting world. It's a world of terror. It's a world where in some way you're walking on time bombs. Now this is what is read to people when they are listening to what it means to be a committed Jew. Now what is interesting, after reading this, I gave you more. Not that I want to scare you. I advise you to read it not at night. <laughs> or have a little scotch whiskey with it. Or a good niggin. And the question is, do you take this seriously? Do we take this seriously or do we look at it and say, <laughs> He's terrifying us. Is it true? No, it's a story. It's a story of what we could expect the universe to look like. Is that what happens? Does the lack of observance of American Jews to mitzvot and Torah bring about the suffering of the Jewish people? So when the Hasidim or others say, that the Holocaust was caused by Zionism. You understand what their theology is based upon. This is one face of Judaism. It's a face that we're frightened of, ashamed of. It's a, it's a, it's a face in which you terrify the person into obedience. You, you create a world of terror in order to inspire loyalty. Now here is interesting. The Jews had this tradition. What did they do with it? Did they continue it or did they say hold it? That's not what we want. We don't want Judaism to start from terror and then suddenly they introduce what people think is Christian. I observe the commandments because I love God. I love the commandments. 
It is my kihichachmatchem uvinatchem le'eneha'amim. This is my passport to credibility, to in some way proclaim the spirituality of the Jewish people. I observe this because it has meaning. I observe this because I'm committed out of love. I observe this because it provides a way of life that in some way organizes my meanings. I don't want to be connected out of terror. But the biblical world offers you covenantal terror. The covenant is not a pleasant moment. The covenant is filled with electricity of terror. You do it, and you say it every day in your Krishna, and no one rebels against it, except Hartman. What does that mean? If you listen, then the skies are going to open up for you. So therefore, when the Chassidim organize a prayer festival for rain, you understand where it comes from. Now, if you're nurtured by this type of text, if this mythological thinking defines your religious consciousness, what type of person are you? You want an understanding of the religious Haredi community or the yeshiva community? Read these texts. Don't run away from them. Look at them and say, what are the implications for the type of human being that this creates? Who are the people who become this? And when people take it seriously, how do they act in the world? What's their major problem? That women should not walk on the sidewalks of the men. Is that manners? Is that nice? What's manners? We're talking about a cosmic world in which the purity of the Bible comes through. Purity is down with sex, down with women. Women want to dive in at the cartel. Get them out of here. They don't belong here. One minute. Is that menschlichkeit? Do you speak to people that way? There's something much more at stake. There's a time bomb going to go off. They live with that sense of terror. Don't you understand? They're not relaxed. It's not a relaxing religion. It's a religion that says, yeah, okay, no, so zoom. And it's not only one time. In Deuteronomy, I gave you the text as well. You read it, you just shudder. And what, what is the fundamental thing is the total futility of your behavior. The total futility. Nothing has any significance. You're frightened even though there's no one running after you. You live in terror. Psychologically, you've been dehumanized. So Judaism and halachic spirituality, from one face of it, is inhuman. It dehumanizes you. It makes you, I mean, push away any human interaction if it is in some way in contradiction to what you believe the living Torah is about.
So you could understand the conflicts in our country is about time bombs. It's about tzatzot that will go off, that will put our lives in danger, and everything gets pushed aside. Arabs, should Arabs ha hold land? No, I'll quote a text which shows you shouldn't rent it to Goyim. But there may be other 100 texts which show something else, but no. It is that frame of reference that's going to define my life. I want to have a secure Israel that I have to in some way make sure that I, I eliminate the opposition. To give a conservative and reformed rabbi a feeling of dignity? What? Dignity? Where's that in the Torah? Kvod Abriot? So there's one rabbi wrote a book about Kvod Abriot. So religion doesn't humanize you. Can't you understand that? That's the big issue. Does Judaism create a mensch? Or if you take Torah seriously, what type of picture of the world do you live with? What do you expect the world to be? So I gave you a bunch of texts, and then you'll see that the fundamental difference between Yehuda Levi and Maimonides the God concept in Maimonides has nothing to do with the terror. Maimonides didn't want to create a Jewish society grounded in terror and fear. And when the Talmud later on says, schar mitzvah, mitzvah, there's a revolution. The reward of a mitzvah is not the rains will come and the crops will grow and all the women will be pregnant. Schar mitzvah, mitzvah. The reward of a mitzvah is the doing of the mitzvah. It's the experience of living a meaningful life. Suddenly a different direction opens up. When Rabbi, ya Rabbi Yaakov said, Schar mitzvah b'hai al-meleka. How can he say that? That's so anti-biblical. I mean, the biblical framework is there is immediate gratification, immediate response. You can tell if you chose the right path or not. Suddenly, money is, is, is asked, why don't they mention Triatamatim in the Bible? So he says, because Triatamatim is postponed gratification. The reward comes later. In the biblical world, you look for immediate gratification. Immediate gratification. You want immediate signs that in some way God is still with you. For Yehuda Levi, that's the essential question. For Maimonides, the question is not if God is with you on a divine providential level. The question is, is God the ground of your picture of reality? Is God in some way the foundation of the way you organize your perception of the world? Is God your aspirational model? Is God there not so much as a... Did he put on film this morning? <laughs> Check it off. 
I know people who have a life boy chart. How many did they do? How many did they fail to do? I've, I've never seen more tears than on Yom Kippur. When I was in yeshiva, people were crying, crying. Oh boy, the sense of sin, the sense of guilt, the sense of inadequacy, the sense that I'm a failure, that I have not lived up to the aspirations of what the Bible expected of me as being a member of the covenantal people. I'm a carrier of the covenant. I'm the carrier of the living God in history. I reflect in my life God's responsiveness to my existence, God's responsiveness, God's interest in my life as an individual. That's what it means to be a Jew, to be a witness to that lived reality. Adonai. How does the world know about Adonai? Because there's the Jewish people. And if you read the texts I've given you, you see in Deuteronomy, this is repeated continuously. That the people are the carrier. Their lives, the way they construct their events, the way they tell their stories, the way they construct their myths, is what in some way keeps alive a personal God. What price do you pay for belief in a personal God. What price? And if you don't pay any price, what am I going to try to convince you not to believe? I'm going to try to convince you that your prayers are not going to change anything. Why? Why would I want to do that? When in Shira Chadasha, people are singing in their prayers, joyfully proclaiming the Lord. Or you go to a nice Baptist church, and they're saying, hallelujah. And they are proclaiming, proclaiming that he's alive. After how many years? He came out of retirement. That's the feeling people have, that in Israel he came out of retirement and he's back again in the show. He's back again in the game. I could bring my expectations to him. So what type of real politic do I develop? How do I live in the world if I am the carrier of the Adonai? How do I see myself? How do I see others? What is the world I live in? And Yehuda Levi's question is, the king keeps on asking him, do you think you're superior? You think you're the chosen elect? What's about the rest of the world? And then there's a very important question that Yehuda Levi asks himself. Why does God say, Why doesn't it say, I'm the Lord your God who created the world. So what is Yehuda Levi's answer? You mean that we are like everybody else? You mean that our obligation is because we are a creature of God? No, our obligation grows from our specific uniqueness. We are the elect. We are the carriers 
of the spiritual power of events in history. We are not like anybody other people. We are the pick. We are the elect. We are the carriers of Anochi Adonai. And therefore for us the mythic stories must go on and on and on and tell more stories. I remember after the Six Day War they were telling stories about how the Egyptians ran when they approached uh, a brigade of Israeli soldiers or how many times they threw bombs into the Aron Kodesh and it didn't go off. Israelis love those stories of miracles because that's who they are. We are not reality bound. We are fantasy bound. We are story bound. We build our lives out of a picture that we construct. And the Bible is full of those pictures. What picture do you hook onto? Do you hook onto the Egyptian story of the myth of the sea splitting and the plagues? Or is your world Talmud Torah, sitting and learning and feeling as you learn an intimacy with God, not grounded in fear, not grounded in terror, but in some way feeling that the very fact that you are is a symptom that you have significance. Your significance is not in the miracles that occur, your significance lies in the fact that you exist. And I want you to read all the sections of Maimonides. Anoch Adonai for Maimonides is, I am God. I am the source of reality. Your being depends on me. You are because I am. That sense of religious consciousness is totally absent in Yehuda Levi. I know I have a God when I see changes in the world which mediate through miracle an eternal presence who acts, who acts and affects the world. Which do you want to choose, Halevi or Maimonides? What stories are you going to tell about Egypt? Is the story going to be God hates slavery. God loves freedom. God hates tyranny. Is your focus on the tyranny of Pharaoh and the abject loss of dignity of slaves? What happens to a human being when he loses his freedom? Is that to your focus of Passover? Or your focus of Passover is, I live in a world which is unpredictable. I live in a world where God has a will and God is free and he can break into the world at any time he feels he wants to. Do I believe in a God who is not limited by nature but who stands above nature and breaks into nature? What story, how do I live the Egyptian story? I mean, when people are bored at the Seder, because you don't know what the heck you're talking about. What's going on there? What is there to tell? 
שלא אחד בלבד עומד עלינו לכאן לא עושינו. אלא, אלא, I remember my father singing that שבכל דור ודור עומדם עלינו לכאן לא עושינו. והקודש ברוך הוא מצילנו מאדם. So not only once in history were we threatened with destruction. שלא אחד בלבד עומד עלינו לכאן לא עושינו. Our lives have always been vulnerable, but thank God for the Rabbani Shalom. That's Yehuda Levi. We have been protected. We've been watched over because we are the keys for a personal living God in history for the world. We are the heart of the world. So we may be small, comparison to Christianity and Islam, we are pushed failures. They divide the world between them. And what do we have? A mezuzah factory. <laughs> How many mezuzahs do we sell this week? I always like people going into stores and they <laughs> kissing away there. <laughs> what, is this? What's, what is all that about? So I say, what do you do? There was no mezuzah, there was just a wall. <laughs> no. As I remember, people before they're going on a plane, they stand by the mezuzah and kiss it. I said, Mrs. Cohen, don't kiss the mezuzah, kiss the pilot. <laughs> Look at the pilot. The mezuzah ain't going to make it land safely. No. I got security now. Hartman, shut up. <laughs> Don't you rob me of the peace of mind I have. Go give your lectures. I don't mind. But leave me alone with my mezuzah, with my tzitzis, with my milchiks and fleshiks, my chomets and matzah, leave me alone. So when I see people cleaning up for Pesach, washing the drapes, I say, Hinini muchan abuzuman, the kayim mitzvah, washing the drapes. Am I going to tell them you don't have to wash drapes, the drapes are not going to be chomets? No. I'm going to tell them you don't have to go through spring cleaning? No. Clean, clean all you want. then spend 10 years with obsessive neurosis with Freud. Clean, clean, clean. It's still dirty. I remember in my shul, I used to walk into a lady who's, who was much obsessed with cleanliness. It drove me crazy. I couldn't, I couldn't breathe when I was in her house. So at that time, I used to smoke. So I'd smoke, and I was terrible. <laughs> And I would put the ashes on the floor. And I said, Mrs. Gutner, you see, the house did not explode. <laughs> A piece of dirt is not terrifying. Relax. Relax? And be Jewish? I can't relax before Pesach. Because my tradition is terror. Chas v'shalom, you'll find a crumb. The house will go up in flames. I said, Mrs. Gutner, 
relax. The crumb ain't going to make a difference. Just look at your children a different way. Give your husband a hug and talk about freedom. Talk about what it means to be a decent human being. She'd look at me and say, what does one thing have to do with the other? What I'm involved with is cleaning up the universe. <laughs> I'm setting a cosmic purity. Are you prepared to understand that? Okay. Now the one who really lived that and felt that deeply is the Kuzari. With Maimonides, you don't understand the paradox is, how can a guy who in some way didn't believe in a personal God, I'm convinced he didn't believe in divine providence. Larry, you could argue with me, you could spend the rest of your time here, and I will convince you that Maimonides did not have a personal God. And yet, he wrote so much about prayer, yet he wrote 3,000 tshuva tevalacha, I understand why Leo Strauss and all others can't figure out how could a guy who was so deeply grounded in Aristotelian philosophy take all the pitchifkis of halacha seriously. Yet he does. Can't deny that. So my approach in my books is I leave them both alone. Leave them alone. Let them both be there. So what of it? They don't seem to fit. A guy who's obsessed with halacha it's not going to be an Aristotelian. It's not going to look for cosmic order. It's not going to be a guy who's in trying to demythologize miracle. He's not. And yet wherever Maimonides can, he dislikes miracle. Whereas Yehud HaLevi thrives on miracle. Because that is what confirms that we are a unique people. Without miracle, we're just ordinary, you know, guys. With miracle, there's something unique about us. What is that uniqueness? That's my second lecture. What's the meaning of chosen people? Does it have any meaning today? Besides Mordechai Kaplan's rejection of it, what does it mean to say we are a chosen people? We are the elect. And Yehuda Levi understand what that means. We are the carriers of a personal God. Our history mediates that. But what does it mean? So a second lecture will be about election. I agree with your fundamental distinction between Halevi and Maimonides. And certainly on, on an ideal level, uh, Maimonides wants to ground uh, Judaism in the fear of God's sublimity. Uh, you're at Hiroma with God's majesty and also, and love is the idea of knowledge and, and desire and doesn't really think much of miracles. However, I was actually teaching uh, the guide this year and Maimonides uh, does not seem to have a uh, very high opinion of the multitude. And in the guide 332, he says that most people, the only way you're going to get people, most people, obviously it's not the ideal, the only way you're going to get people to observe commandments is, again, referring to Leviticus and Deuteronomy, by threatening them with reward and punishment. And then he says, and God threatens them with the reward and punishment, and in order that they take it seriously, he actually carries out the reward and 
punishment. Now, this, again, is not, he is not making the foundation of Judaism, but at least in this text, and we could argue about it, uh, he does seem to indicate that uh, there is an idea of reward and punishment, at least for the multitude, as a necessary evil. Yeah, I mean, I could understand that. I mean, you could look upon most people as animals. Maimonides' regard for human beings is not very high. That's clear. He was an aristocrat that in some ways saw himself totally above, separate from the masses. Yet, yet, in my second book on Maimonides, what was it called? Leadership in Crisis. In Hebrew, it's Manhigut Be'et Matzo. He was willing to put his life in danger for the community. When there was the Islamic persecution and people were running off to messiahs, the one who stood there soberly was Maimonides and told people, messiah ain't coming, so don't sell your homes. And you see him as a leader involved in the needs of the masses. So elitism and mass religion are not necessarily in contradiction with each other. I think the whole Bible is that. If you look at the Chumash, the Jewish people are not Moses. The gap between Moses and what the Jewish people are is enormous. But we're stuck with the Jewish people. It's like you're stuck with your family. What can I do? That's my family. But what type of family is it? Look at, look at the myths they carry. Look at the stories they tell. Look at their values as a result of what they thought is the demands of Judaism. You can't talk to them. As Ernst Simon was answered Salvechik when he asked him, are you still flirting with the conservative movement? So Ernst Simon answered Salvechik, the people I can talk with, I can't daven with. And the people I daven with, I can't talk to. That is the tragedy of a thinking Jew. You walk alone, and yet you call yourself Jewish, which means you're connected to your family. You're so bound to your family, and yet the difference between yourself and the family is enormous. I walk in the streets, and I say, Hartman, is there any connection between you and them? And there was a period of time for years when I stopped davening, when I said, I, 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 can't, I can't fit into what my family does. Until one day I said, cut it out, Hartman. Start davening again. Meaningful, what? You just do the right thing. What is the right thing? What the family does. So sometimes you live not by its intrinsic meaning, but by its mishpachtology. This is how I call it mishpachtology. I'm, I'm doing a new book on a volume of essays in which one of them is about mishpachtology religion. In my house, for my father, it was more important to live like his father than to live like the Gemara. If I would tell my father, Pa, you don't have to sit in a sukkah. You have to sit in a sukkah, Shmini Atzeret. 
The Gemara says, Yesuve Yasvinon, Bruche Lomavachinon. You sit, but you don't make a bracha. So he said to me, Do it. Dein Tatat leapt in Yerushalayim. We never in Shmini Atzeretz were in a sukkah. I said, Pa, that's Yerushalayim. Because they don't have two days yantif. You Litvisha jerk. It's a Rachmanis that I sent you to Yeshiva. You start quoting Gemara, it has nothing to do with Gemara. It has to do with the way my father lived. I have no answer to that. Pa, you're absolutely right. The way your father lived in Yerushalayim, it may have no meaning in light of the difference between Atzischerl and Golos. It may have no meaning in light of the Gemara, but your Judaism is what your father did and the family you were brought up in. It has nothing to do with truth. It has nothing to do with halachic purity. It has nothing to do with the Talmud. It has to do with living practice. Living practice. I was brought up in a religious home. My mother was a from woman. To watch her pray was something marvelous. So what am I going to say? Show me a Gemara. What is it? Show me a Gemara. It has nothing to do with Gemara. It has to do with what living people are doing. Judaism is not a religion of truth. It's a mishpacha folk way. And that way, Mordechai Kaplan was right. They're folk ways. It's what the mishpacha got used to doing. And if you break the routine, you wonder, how do I get back into the mishpacha? How will the mishpacha welcome me after I've been on a trip away? Good question. Therefore, the most important need for a Jew to do is to welcome every Jew into his mishpacha. You're my mishpacha. So when I speak to the army, they feel they're my mishpacha. They haven't got a clue what Yiddishkeit is about. But it's my mishpacha. I mean, I don't like Israel. I mean, it stinks. What's there to like? I have to wait an hour and a half when I have to visit a doctor? I have to have a nurse who screams at me and a doctor who doesn't look at my face when he wants to know what I feel. He's been looking at the paper. I say, excuse me, Dr. Schmerl, why don't you look at me? He said, I don't have to look at you. I'm an Israeli doctor. I could know what's wrong with you without looking. I know that's why people are very frightened <laughs> to see doctors in Israel. You, I cross the road with my cane and I'm always worried which car is going to circumvent the bus and am I going to get home in one piece. Thank God I have my metapel who watches over me. I mean, following you, you ride on a highway and the person says, Bavakasha, <laughs> you first? You ever try to get online? I remember when I came here, I got online. I, 
I was trained as an American. And suddenly I find out that I was in the same place after a half hour. <laughs> Everybody seems to be moving and I'm standing in one place. Manners. So people tell me, I'm a funak. I'm Amerikai. sabari. Don't take it so seriously. Let it phase off. So is Israel our home? Is it the home we dreamt about? Let this question bother you every night. Is this what we hoped for? Is this the home I want to live in? So my answer is, this is the home that the mishpacha has. It has no other lease on any other piece of land. That's where the mishpacha's memories are. Here's where they grew up in. Here's where you... Isaiah walked. Here's the Ramban, Rechov Ramban, Rechov Ibn Ezra, Rechov Rashbah. I remember when I was feeling depressed, I said, God, keep me alive because I'm, I'm getting old and sick. I said, let me keep on seeing Rehov Rajba. Suddenly, just seeing that in the street gave me a sense of feeling home. Home. I feel this is my home because my family lived here and my family's stories center around this place. Are you a member of the Mishpacha? If you are, you have a place. If you're not a member of the Mishpacha, and that's my fear of Sholem Achshav and the left, the left sometimes just simply don't know what it means to live in a dirty house. <laughs> they want who knows what. I'm prepared to live in this house as my Mishpacha. My Judaism is a Mishpacha. And my halacha is what connects me to a mishpacha. If you want a mishpacha, join Judaism. If you want to live alone in existential crisis, and you know, in Drang, in Camus, and who knows what, okay, go to the Reconstructionist Shul. They're still asking why. Or they're still asking the question, is it true? <laughs> you could be there a hundred years and they'll still ask, is it true? Who cares? This is how the Mishpacha lived. My father didn't care what the Gemara said. What interested him was the way his father lived. Because we sat in the sukkah, he saw his father. He didn't see God, he didn't see the halacha, he saw his father, and that was important to him, that he and his father could meet in the sukkah. Do you understand that? I think it's very important. And I remember my students in America when I was an early rabbi, but we'd have no zaydi. Our problems, we didn't, don't have a, a memory of Shabbos. We don't have all those stories in me. How do we get into the family when we never lived a family Judaism? 
I remember they were pleading. I don't know. I really don't know what the answer is. But a good family man stays with the family even though it's in Tsaris. We're in a little Tsaris now. We've got some crazy people running the family, but it's still the family. And people will say, that's what Judaism is about? Yeah. That's what life is about. Life is not about philosophy or truth. It's about the family you want to join. You want to join a family? Follow me. I can only take you to introduce you to different families. And then choose the family you want to live with. There ain't many around that you would like to stay with. But find a family and hook on to that. Because that's the only thing that matters in life. I think so anyway. Anyway, Lila Tov people. You have been listening to David Hartman. President Emeritus and founder of Shalom Hartman Institute. Subscribe to this podcast to be notified of more lectures in this series. For information about the Hartman Institute and our courses in North America and Israel, go to hartman.org.il. The Hartman Institute podcast is produced by Tony Jason. Music by Kevin McLeod. I'm Alan Abbey. Thank you for listening, and we will see you again next time.